welcome to Scare You to Sleep. I'm your host, Shelby Scott. Sorry for the late episode this week, folks. I hope you can forgive me. After you hear tonight's stories, I think you will. I have four amazing tales for you from four very talented authors. I wanted to mention at the top of the show, I will be taking a hiatus next week. I've fallen behind on a few things and I don't want to deliver subpar content. I'm working on a few original stories. It's been a while. (laughs) I also need to get the website back up and running. And speaking of original stories, remember to send me your stories at scareyoutosleep at gmail.com. And I've been wanting to do another kids episode. If you listened to my last one, you know that I took an actual kid story written by a real life kid and put it in the episode. That was so much fun that I would love to do it again. So if you have kids or nieces or nephews or you're a teacher and you know one of them has a fun idea for a horror story, send it along with their name. And if you'd like, you can send along their age as well. Just so you can always remember how old they were when they were featured on the show. I also know that privacy is a concern when it comes to little ones. So you can always let me know how you'd like their name to be read, whether it's first and last, just their first name, or even just their initials. I'm so excited to see what I get from all of you. Now, on with the stories. First up this week is by author Haley Hendershot. I will leave a link in the show notes back to her Reddit profile where she has other very scary stories for you to read. This one is called Mommy Sleeps in the Basement. Speak louder, please. I put my hand up next to my ear from the back of the room, signaling that she would need to raise her voice. She took a deep breath. I could see her anxiety turning her cheeks beet red as strands of blonde hair began to fall out of the same nappy ponytail she wore every day. There was something about her, so familiar, but I just couldn't put my finger on it. With her face glued to the paper, too afraid to make eye contact, she quickly sputtered out, Hi, my name is Paisley Jackson, and this is my poem called My Family. Paisley was a shy little girl. In fact, she was one of the quietest students I ever had in my ten years of teaching, which I guess being the youngest of eleven will do that to anyone. Surprisingly, she was very smart, unlike the rest of her siblings who were dumber than a box of rocks. Lord, the Jackson kids were such a headache. Except for Paisley, of course. I just wish I could have given her more opportunities to improve her future. Don't get me wrong. I tried to help Paisley. I really did. I gave her clothes, food, even had funds lined up for her. But Living dirt poor in a shack out in the middle of the desert was a bad hand to be dealt in life. Besides, no matter what I did, it wouldn't have made a difference. Everyone knows that the cycle of poverty is almost impossible to break. I crossed my legs, pen in hand, preparing for yet another bland story about a family I'd never get to meet. If you've ever worked with underprivileged kids, you'd know that Guardian involvement is quite rare 
When it came to interest in their daughter's education, Paisley's parents were no exception. <clears throat> I have two mommies. One named Betty who can make good spaghetti. I call her mom. She's the one that's married to my dad, Tom. One named Claire with pretty yellow hair. I call her mommy. Dad calls her his project, his hobby. Being smack dab in the middle of Utah, I've seen hundreds of polygamous families, so th this didn't strike me as odd. Besides, even though polygamy is illegal, I try to keep my nose in my own business. Mom takes care of us all. She can do that because she's so tall. Mom, mommy, wears a pretty silver bracelet. She wears it because she's so famous. Wouldn't be the first time I saw kids coming up with stories about celebrity parents to add excitement to their ordinary lives. I just didn't expect it to come from Paisley. Mommy has me and Tommy. He's one of my older brothers. Mom is a lot older. She has all the others. I cringed. That meant that one of Paisley's mothers had given birth to nine children. Ugh, I couldn't imagine going through that many pregnancies. Dad says me and Tommy are a gift from God. He'll never hit us with a rod. His pride and joy is Tommy. But he says the only person he truly loves is Mommy. I looked up from my grade book. With a line about a rod catching my attention. However, this wasn't the first time one of my students have accidentally reported abuse. Truth is, CPS picks and chooses who they want to help. Mom is having another baby. She's mad Dad wants to name it Daisy. Mommy can't have no more kids. Her last one died of SIDS. Shifting in my seat, I scribbled down a note reminding myself to deliver my daughter's old baby clothes to the Jackson shack. As a mother myself, I know babies can be expensive. Dad said she did it on purpose because she wanted to run off and join the circus. Mom said it wasn't her fault. I promised to keep that stuff secret in the me and her vault. I shook my head in sadness. How could someone blame a grieving mother for something she couldn't control? Mommy was the one Dad chose. He watched all of her school shows. They were joined in the night. Daddy says inside her is a lot of fight. Mom is just a cover. Dad doesn't really love her. I threw my hand up. A gesture meaning stop I had taught my students, but Paisley didn't look up. She continued to read, oblivious to my disappointed frown. Obviously, one of her siblings put her up to this as a joke. Mommy says she needs to get out. She wants to show me what life is all about. Dad gets mad. It's his biggest pet peeve. Mommy is sad. She just wants to leave. Mommy sings to me her favorite song. Mom says Dad's head is wired wrong. Shaking my head, I sighed. Another child with so much potential and such a kind heart was stuck in the middle of a lover's quarrel that didn't even involve her. Last birthday, 
I wanted to take Mommy to see her favorite basketball team. Mom made me a cake with frosted buttercream. I got to see the Knicks, but Dad said he made a mistake he couldn't fix. Nothing is the same anymore. I don't know why for sure. Now Dad cries at night alone. He asks God, what have I done? To Mom, he no longer tends. She hopes the baby will make amends. Paisley rose her head up with a smile, looking for my approval. Although I was appalled at the inappropriateness of her poem, I didn't want to break her spirits. She was clearly very proud of it, and scolding her for something that wasn't her wrongdoing was just going to send that little girl back into her shell that I'd been trying to break for months. So instead, I clapped making the rest of the class, who were too young to understand the gravity of the situation, applaud too. Mrs. June, I brought a picture of Mommy for extra credit. It's one more part of the poem. Can I show the class? I nodded my head, thinking there couldn't possibly be any details worse than what she already presented. Paisley reached into the front pocket of her worn-out hand-me-down dress, pulling out an old aging photo. She flipped the flaking picture around, displaying it as if it was her most prized possession. My blood ran cold. I finally figured out why Paisley looked so familiar to me. In what seemed to be a school photograph, smiling ear to ear exactly like Paisley, was a young woman by the name of Claire Daisy. She was a high school student, popular for her ability to gain the lead in every school play. She went missing without a trace 12 years prior. She was last seen leaving theater practice late one night, but then she just vanished. No sign of a struggle, no witnesses, no evidence, no body, nothing. Her case was covered on every news station in Utah for a while because of how peculiar it was until people lost interest Paisley happily continued. I was so in shock I couldn't stop her as she read off the back of the picture. There is one thing I don't understand, and maybe you'll have the answer at hand. If Daddy's love for Mommy will never sway, why did he treat her that way? Mom lays her head on a nice soft bed, but Mommy sleeps in the basement under a big slab of cement. This next story is by Reddit user Manen underscore Lisette. I'll have a link in the show notes back to their Reddit page so you can explore their other stories as well. The story I have for you tonight is called My First and Last Experience staying in a capsule hotel in Tokyo. I just got back from going on my dream vacation to Japan. 
for the most part. It was awesome, and everything went off without a hitch. My flights were on time, the language barrier wasn't too bad, it was fairly easy getting around. I got to see most of the stuff on my itinerary, the food was delicious. There's only one sore spot that really stands out, and that's the night I stayed at a capsule hotel. I was supposed to stay there three nights, but after the first shit, I ended up using my emergency funds to pay for a hotel the next two nights. I think you'll understand why after you read this. I want to start off by stressing just how damn exhausted I was. This was at the tail end of a two-week trip where I hadn't taken a single day off, so to speak. We're talking eight to ten hours of walking every day, exploring the cities, going to shrines, shopping, and all the other good stuff. I'd started the day bright and early in Osaka, soaking up every bit of the city I could, knowing it might be the last time I was going to see it. I took an evening train to Tokyo, which took about three and a half hours. From there, I headed to Akihabara and explored, dragging my luggage behind me. I could have left it in a locker at the train station, but that meant doubling back and grabbing it, and I didn't want to subject my feet to that. I decided on a chill evening. I ended up being so enthralled that I didn't get to the capsule hotel until a bit past midnight. So, yeah, I felt like I could have slept through a hurricane. I checked in, got a neat little bracelet with my capsule number, as well as a key to a small locker for my stuff. I somehow managed to wedge my oversized luggage in there. I took a shower and then headed to my capsule for sweet, sweet sleep. If you've never heard of capsule hotels, just imagine a morgue, except instead of a wall of tiny human freezers, it's full of neat, slightly larger sleeping areas tall enough to sit up and use a laptop and long enough to sleep in, but not much else. As I crawled into capsule 616, I noticed a little light indicator come on on the outside of the capsule to indicate that it was occupied. Sweet. I pulled the door down, played with every single knob on the wall just because I could, and once I figured out how to turn the lights off, my head hit the pillow and it was off to dreamland for about 10 minutes. It wasn't long before I started hearing a voice through the walls. I guess they were thinner than they looked, and that my sleep hadn't plunged into deep enough territory for me to stay unconscious despite the mental and physical exhaustion. I tried to fall back asleep, but the voice kept me up. It was constant, and I mean seriously, non-stop. I don't think she ever took the time to breathe. Imagine that one Eminem song. You know the one, right? It was like that, except it went on for easily half an hour. Because the sound was muffled and because every syllable melted into the next, I couldn't make out what language she was speaking. I don't think it was Japanese. I don't know. I'm not a linguist expert. But there weren't a lot of that A sound that you hear so often in Japanese. And she was hitting those R's pretty hard, so... If I had to guess, I think it might have been German? Whatever language it was, it was freaking me out. That's when I remember the buttons on the wall. I pawed around until I turned the lights on and then found the knob for the white noise. Bless you, Japan, for your practical technology. 
My little capsule was soon filled with the sound of rain and thunder, easily overpowering the voice from my neighbor's capsule. I could still hear her, sure, but she was a whisper in a typhoon. I dimmed the lights, closed my eyes, all was right with the world. For, you guessed it, about ten minutes. Intermixed with the synthetic storm was the wailing of a tornado siren. It took me a long time to realize it wasn't meant to be there, and that it was coming from my neighbor. At this point, it was about two in the morning. I was tired, I was cranky, I just wanted a few hours of sleep before another fun-filled day of adventure. I was internally cursing at whatever inconsiderate fucking tourist starts screaming in their goddamn capsule in the middle of the goddamn night, knowing full well everyone could hear her. In my frustration, I made my one big mistake. I slammed my fist into the wall and screamed, Shut the fuck up! This was her invitation to start slamming back. And boy, did she take it and run with it. Screaming. She hit the wall so hard, I swear to God, it felt like my entire capsule was shaking. It was like she was full-on body-slamming it with all her might, all while screaming so loud I could barely hear the storm anymore. I put my hand on the wall and I felt it buckle as she thrashed against it. I backed away into the opposite wall, but I could still feel every slam as though it was coming from the capsule to my left instead of my right. I'd had enough. I was going to see if the concierge was still awake and see what they could do about putting me in another floor or kicking this jerk out. I opened my capsule door and jumped onto solid ground. The little occupied light at the foot of my capsule turned off after a few seconds. The noise stopped. The banging ceased. And my breath caught in my throat. I looked at the light indicator under my neighbor's capsule. It was turned off. I could feel cold sweat pouring out of me. Just a broken light, right? That's what I had hoped. But I guess I've read one too many horror stories because something compelled me to grab her door handle and slowly lift it. Yeah. The neighbor's capsule was empty. I spent the night on a bench in the locker room. I know I probably should have left entirely, but I was spent. The next morning, stiff and barely rested, I went down to the lobby and tried to explain what happened in my pitiful, broken-ass Japanese. The concierge looked confused, and even after using a translation service, I didn't get anywhere. Until she saw my bracelet with the room number. There was the slightest micro-expression of horror on her face. She pulled my arm towards her, gently took the bracelet off, and flipped it around. I was supposed to be in capsule 919, not 616. That look on her face, though, I can still picture it in my mind's eye. I have a feeling it wasn't just a look of, oh dear, you were in the wrong capsule. 
I think she knew damn well what was going on. So, yeah, I went to a hotel the next night. I've said it before, I'll say it again. Unemployment sucks. I started my professional career right around the time of the Great American Recession in 2008. Perfect timing. People were taking any gig they could get. Lawyers did construction, accountants worked in fast food. My dad even jumped back out of retirement just to help pay off the last remaining debt on our mortgage. Pundits called it the summer of underemployment, and even still, I threw my tiny little resume out to every local business I could find. The callbacks trickled in at one or two a week. I delivered pizzas for a bit. I managed the checkout line at ShopRite for a couple months. I even lifeguarded a water park with co-workers half my age. All of this with a bachelor's degree already under my belt. Ultimately, I settled for a gig at the local pharmacy and entered into the worst job of my young adult life, Leonard Pharmacy. The store sat in what could be politely called the most underdeveloped part of our small town. Opiate addiction was common for the area, so was petty crime. A lot of families who lived nearby survived off disability payments, social security, and wilting retirement accounts. Some of them were so hooked on our little white pills that they were in our shop once or twice a week. My boss called them the regulars. The owner was a short, wiry man named Devesh. Devesh traveled to the United States in his early 30s with a goal of finding a better life for his growing family. He picked a good line of work for it. The pill-popping business boomed in our town. Months after opening the first pharmacy, Devesh could afford to open a second store in a nearby town, then a third, and a fourth. By the time he had a restaurant to go with his medical real estate portfolio, the original Leonard Pharmacy became sort of an afterthought. Devesh hired a second pharmacist to take over his shifts. He spent less and less time behind the counter or in the store, and more at his other businesses. And that was when the stealing started to become a serious problem. It's always stupid stuff, he told me on the job interview. Sure, we get people with the fake scripts, but the cops will take that seriously. It happens once and never again. Not so much effort with the candle thief. Candle thief? I asked deliriously, trying to hold back a chuckle. Who would steal candles? Devesh grimaced. I lose at least five of them a week. And they're expensive. Yankee Candle, $10 a pop from the vendor. He paused and took notice of my reaction. The police are the same way. All a big joke, right? But I cannot afford to lose merchandise. Razor-thin margins. And the pharmacist cannot watch the shelves all day. I am in a really bad situation, man. A nervous feeling started to fill my gut. You want me to watch people? He laughed. <laughs> no, no, not watch. 
You'll be doing maintenance. You can help stock shelves, ring up general items, empty the garbages, count the register. Obviously, you cannot assist with the pharmacy, but your responsibility will be everything else, everything in the store except the prescriptions. I thanked him and said I would think about it, but I didn't wait that long. I mentioned the idea to my mother and she approved. My dad said it could be a good way to learn about small businesses, so I guess he liked it. Even my little sister thought it would be cool for me to work at the place she always got her energy drinks before school. And on top of all that, I liked Devesh. Moreover, I respected him. He seemed like a good guy trying to carve out his part in the world. I guess it sounded exciting to be a part of it. I could learn from somebody like that, and the pay beat the shit out of the pizza place. I came back the next day and asked him to sign me up for the night shift. He hired me on the spot. First few months were uneventful. Most of my bad experiences revolved around expired scripts and impatient assholes. I bounced a couple of junkies in the first few weeks. I had to call the cops once or twice. I started to settle into my regular shift of five to nine, Monday through Saturday. I welcomed the consistency of it. But the candles continued to go missing. I had to admire the thief's ingenuity. He never hit more than once a day. He knew how to time the crowds. Usually after dealing with a herd of four to five customers, I would do my usual rounds of the store, only to find the telltale empty box sitting on the shelf. The thief actually went through the time to take it out of the packaging and leave the glass top behind. I wondered whether it had something to do with the barcode at the time. I kept my eyes on the customers as much as possible as the missing candles began to stack up, and yet, at a certain point, became offensive to follow people around. More than once, somebody asked me what I was doing, and I was forced to fall back on the bullshit excuse of stocking the shelves. I realized that someone might find my intentions race-based and not candle-based. That made me even more uncomfortable. But the boss didn't care. Devesh stopped in the store one early Saturday evening on his way to the restaurant. I could tell he was incensed from the get-go. Buddy, I hired you to stop the candle guy and all my candles are still gone. What gives? I shrugged and tried to explain the difficulties of tracking the movements of 100 customers a day on my own. I told him about how it made me uncomfortable to follow people. He nodded and threw up an impatient hand. Okay, understood. I'm not stocking candles anymore. They didn't sell well anyway, and the company charges too high a premium. Razor-thin margins, buddy. Devesh caught me breathing a sigh of relief and continued. I still want you to watch the shelves. A thief is a thief. That won't stop him from stealing. I agreed, thanked him, and sent him on his way with a fat envelope of money. Must be nice. I worked through the night shift with a new plan to give up on following people. Fuck it. Fuck him. I resigned to the fact that if the thief did move on to another object, say, air fresheners, we would deal with that damn travesty once the evidence became clear. Devesh would probably need some video cameras, not a human spy. The day moved a lot quicker with that thought in mind. Before I got another chance to look at the clock, it was already 9.30. One hour to closing. The store looked dark and empty as the last customer walked out with their 24-pack of water bottles. I disappeared to the back room to grab my jacket. 
When I returned, an unfamiliar man was waiting at the counter. The guy looked unremarkable compared to the rest of the population of downtown Leonard. He was around 5'5", white, blonde hair, and light brown eyes. He wore Timberlands, wrinkled jeans, and oversized gray jacket with a whole mess of hoods and zippers. He spoke quietly and nervously, with a hint of an out-of-area accent. I didn't respond to him any differently than the thousands of customers that came before. Hi, welcome to Leonard. How can I help you? Hi. Do you have any more candles in stock? Jackpot. I know it sounds stupid, but my heart actually started to pound in my chest. The thrill of the catch was in my sights. Not a single soul in two full months on the job had ever asked if we carried candles. Nobody even bought them, to my knowledge. Although Devesh claimed otherwise, my fingers ran towards the panic button under the counter. I had to call the police. But on what suspicion? Asking about candles in a pharmacy is most definitely not a crime. I had to bait him, but I didn't know how. So I stupidly said the obvious. Uh, sorry man, we're out of stock. His expression changed in a heartbeat. Placid brown eyes turned panicked and began to dart back and forth. He turned to look into the corners of the store. His ruddy red complexion became fully flushed. His voice cracked with anxiety. Oh my god. Shit. Please, please tell me you have some in the back. I stared at him. My grasp found the raised emergency button. I begged the idiot to come after me. One push would be all it took. No, somebody had been stealing them. Sound familiar? I thought the man would react to my accusation. That would be the normal thing, right? To deny it or confirm it? Instead, he ran to the front door and slammed it shut. Then he turned to face me. Are there any other entrances? He's coming. I laughed. (laughs) Who is coming? What the fuck are you talking about? He ignored me by running towards the bathroom. You can't get in there without the key. He rushed back towards me. I noticed a wet spot forming just by his leg. Look, I don't have time to explain. I'm sorry. He's coming. He told me he's coming. We need to hide. I realized he must be crazy. The man just wet himself in public. A fierce wind picked up just outside the pharmacy. The dead leaves still drifting through our lot kicked up and created an awkward scraping on the pavement. I stayed behind the counter and kept my eye on the guy, unsure of what to do next. He continued to ramble, unaware of my comments. The candles, the candles keep them away. I'm sorry. I don't know why. I think it's the smell. I tried to pay for some of them. I tried to pay for what I could. That sounded like a confession. I punched the panic button. The sheriff's department is on its way, sir. He laughed. (laughs) You can call the police. Good. Please call them. They won't make it in time. They never make it in time. I don't even know 
would do if they did make it in time. The wind continued to pounce its way through the parking lot. For a moment, it became so severe that the foundation of the building actually seemed to shake. What followed was an unexpected downpouring of white sheets of water. Heavy droplets of hail pounded the ceiling over our heads. The weather channel never called for rain, to my knowledge. The man began to moan. Oh, God. Oh, God. Oh, God. He's coming. That's it. Once he sees you, he's coming. And there's nothing left to do. There's nothing left to do. Nothing to do but die. He rushed back over the entrance and held his foot in front of the door. Oh, God. Oh, God. Oh, God. He's coming. That's it. Once he sees you, he's coming. And there's nothing left to do. Nothing to do but die. Five more minutes. I told myself. Five more minutes before the police met their response time. The rain might slow them down some, sure, but how long could it be? Ten minutes? Twelve? The man never appeared dangerous. He just ranted and raved away. It's the candle. You see, it's, it's that scent. He doesn't like it. But it has to be that flavor. Vaporum, you know? It's expired. They don't make it anymore. You think they know? You think they know it works and that's why they don't make it anymore? I think that's why. I think that's why. I hope I, hope I die. I hope we both die before that thing gets us. I had about enough of this. I pulled a gun from behind the counter and leveled it at the madman's head. Devesh knew enough to keep me protected and I knew enough to take lessons at the range. Get out. This is my final warning. Get out of the store. The short little man stared at me blankly. I can hear him talking now. He says he's going to get me. He says he's going to get you too. I fired a warning shot into the glass. The jackass ducked and fell onto the floor, screaming and shrieking like a banshee as the broken shards collapsed into the folds of his coat. I groaned and reloaded the rifle as he writhed around on the floor like a snake. Get the hell out of here! I shouted back. And just as suddenly as he started, the screaming suddenly stopped. The man got up and smiled. His ruddy face painted a weird, sick little smile that suggested he knew something I did not. Then he jumped through the broken glass and ran into the parking lot. Finally. I followed into the parking lot and tried to catch an idea of where he might be headed for the police. The storm started to get worse. I shielded my eyes from the rain and held onto the railing for balance. The thief tripped by the edge of the parking lot and fell hard onto his knees. I laughed. He placed himself perfectly under the only lamppost on our property. He tried to get up again, but fell backwards as a strong gust of wind pushed forward. I barely had to do anything, I thought to myself. Job well done, Storm. 
the man started to shriek again. I thought it might be the after effects of whatever sick shit he sucked up into his veins. I lazily followed his line of sight in the direction of his outstretched arm and nearly choked on my spit when I saw it. Crouched by the corner of the woods sat a creature taller than me. Before I could react, its shadow shot out from between the trees. It looked like a dog or a wolf at first. All I could tell about the animal was that it traveled on all fours. It charged for the poor little thief mercilessly. I tried to aim my gun. I tried to shoot at it. I think I even got a bullet off in its vicinity, but the blur of movement traveled so quickly that I could barely get a scope on it. I shielded my eyes to see, got my gun ready again, and before ten seconds had passed, blood exited my new friend's neck in a horrific red stream. I screamed. The creature turned its head in my direction. I couldn't see it very well, but I could feel its harsh eyes bore into me from across the parking lot. I backed away towards the store. Those cold eyes followed me steadily. It looked angry. It ignored the bleeding out carcass of the thief in front of it and stared at me. Directly. It ignored the pouring rain. It didn't move. It didn't threaten to attack. It just studied me. The warm handle of Leonard's hit my back like a safety valve. I darted back inside and cut the lights to the store in one smooth motion. The police arrived exactly three painstaking minutes later. I tried to explain everything that happened. I tried to tell them about the thief. I tried to tell them about the animal. I tried to tell them about everything that had happened before and after the story above, but they didn't believe me. Nobody believes me. And it's easy to say why. They never found a man matching my description. They never found a blood stain in the parking lot. All of the video cameras showed static for the entirety of my shift. And all of the missing person leads turned up empty based on my description. I must have sounded like a liar. Police said it never rained in Leonard that night. I was baffled at the time. I had no explanation for the events that occurred other than the bizarre account above, and so I kept it to myself for over a decade. I just kept it to myself. But I'm not confused anymore. I'm not embarrassed. I'm not ashamed to say that the story above really did happen to me at Leonard Pharmacy, and now I'm just scared. Because last night, around six... My small family sat down to dinner on our patio. The weather was beautiful. The sun was just starting to go down over the magnificent woods in Leonard. My wife put out a full spread of burgers, fries, and drinks. The American way. I remember spoon-feeding our youngest daughter and thinking, nothing could be more perfect in life. But just as the sun dipped behind the trees... The wind picked up, 
and a terrible crack of thunder echoed from above. The rain followed soon after in familiar white sheets of unending water. I ushered the kids inside and helped my wife with the dishes. Just as she cleared the last one, I remembered the umbrella and rushed back outside to tie it down. Massive evergreens creaked nervously on the corner of our property. I looked toward them nervously, and that's when I saw him. That's when I heard him. The creature sat on all fours, but it still stood taller than me. Its back arched lazily. I opened my mouth to scream, but could not even try. I knew then that it must be my time. Even still, I turned and ran back inside. I don't know why. I kept a couple of candles burning inside the kitchen. I knew enough to save some from storage, but they won't last long. They never last long. And it also doesn't matter. Once he sees you, there's nothing left to do. You heard the guy. Nothing left to do but die. This last story by Cody Pierce caught my attention because it had to do with dreams, and I felt like it was the most appropriate ending as you drift off to sleep while you listen to the show. I'll link Cody's website in the show notes if you're looking for more of his brand of terror. This story is called Ancient Dark. I found my friend's body in bed sitting up against the headboard. His apartment door was left ajar, as if inviting outsiders to view the gruesome discovery within. He called himself Ancient Dark, A.D. for short. A.D. came into my life roughly two years ago, shortly after my 31st birthday. The dinner at my parents' house that night had left me feeling like a hollowed-out shell They were worried, more so than usual. Here I was, their only child, a full decade older than all his co-workers, and still clinging to the bottom rung of the corporate ladder. I was a quality assurance rep for an app company that specialized in casino games like Pachinko. I spent eight hours a day at my desk playing digital slot machines over and over across a series of smartphones and tablets, logging any issues I found. It was monotonous. It wore out my eyes. It made me hate games. An industry I adored ever since I received a Sega Genesis for my 10th birthday. I'd spent the last four years doing this with no promotion save a few meager raises. I attended university to work in video games. It was six years and a sizable amount of loans studying digital art and graphic design. 
I drew intricate alien landscapes and steampunk robots for classes that asked me to imagine my own virtual universe. The assignments fueled dreams that I would work on, major projects like Metal Gear Solid or Uncharted, say by age 25 or so. It was a dream my parents shared as well. After all, a few of my classmates already made close to six figures working for major publishers like Ubisoft and EA, and they were my age. Why not me? As I drove back to my apartment that night, I realized the answer. It was something I'd known for years, but never consciously considered until that night. I was boring, with a capital B. Single, underpaid, under-inspired, overworked. Prone to bouts of Netflix binging and gaming marathons that left me glued to the couch each weekend. I should have been looking for better opportunities. I should have kept creating new art. I should have set deadlines. I should have updated my art station page. I should have. I should have. I wasn't. That's when I saw him. Pasty skin. Greasy-haired, heavy-set. He wore a Legend of Zelda Triforce t-shirt. This was A.D. He left the apartment just below mine, carrying a couple trash bags to the dumpster. I didn't even know there was someone living beneath me, and I'd been at Oak Hills for two years. Of course, I was usually never out of my apartment after midnight, and this was close to 1 a.m. We only made fleeting eye contact that night. I stopped the car to allow him to pass through the parking lot. In a moment, he nodded and looked at me. A.D. never told me his age, though from his receding hairline, I guess somewhere in the mid-40s. But those eyes. They were the eyes of someone decades, perhaps even centuries older. And though I only saw them for a few seconds that night, they chilled me to my very marrow. There was something about that guy, something fathomless and unknowable. Afterwards, I started taking my trash out late at night, hoping I would run into this mysterious recluse again. A month later, we met in earnest while I was headed to my car. Cool shirt, I said in an awkward attempt to strike up a conversation. He was indeed wearing another cool gaming shirt this one featuring the Umbrella Corp logo from the Resident Evil franchise. Thanks. AD's voice was dusty sounding. He didn't offer any further conversation, so I added, You know, I feel so bad. I've been living here for a while and I don't even know your name, I said. I'm Shiro. AD, the hulking man explained. He didn't offer to shake my hand or anything, though I was glad of it. His hands looked especially sweaty. It stands for Ancient Dark. Oh, that's... I wanted to say weird, but that would be mean and dismissive. Clearly the name was self-imposed. Neat, I said. It's also my handle, AD said, referring to his online username. The mention of games led us to talking about our favorite consoles... Mine, Sega Dreamcast, his PlayStation 2, and titles, mine, Metal Gear Solid, his Half-Life 2, and finally, our own feeble involvement in the industry. I'm a programmer myself, AD explained, 
In fact, I'm working on my own sort of mobile game right now. Awesome, I said, hoping I didn't sound disingenuous. I was interested, but I'd also met many people who were developing their own games that turned out to be nothing more than a glorified version of Pong. What's it about? Adie stared into space for a while, as if I'd just asked him to calculate rocket trajectories in his head. It's... well, it's based on these... dreams I had as a child, he explained. Really? (laughs) That's... very... But I didn't finish my thought, because Adie was already walking back to his apartment. Sorry, I gotta get back to work, he said, not turning around. You'd think such an abrupt end to the conversation would have made me never bother talking to the man again. But I sensed a longing in A.D. He seemed like someone with very little experience in social interaction, and our brief conversation clearly taxed his emotional state, something I could relate to during my hellishly lonely high school years. Hell, I was still largely this way. I was taken by the notion of his game. Granted, I knew virtually nothing about it, but something in his words captured my interest. A light cracked open in my memory when A.D. mentioned childhood dreams. In its hazy illumination, I found something that I didn't even know was missing and wondered how I ever lived without it. My own childhood imagination. Life was anything but boring in my youth. I made up my own languages, spoken only between my friends and I on the playground. I created a board game from rocks I found in my backyard once. I painted my father's guitar and made music banging on paint cans. And I had the most wonderfully colorful dreams. Visions of vast ruins in a drowned world. A world covered in deep, perfectly clear water that inspired equal amounts of awe and terror. Somewhere down the line, through all the school assignments and job interviews, student loans and unpaid bills, those swirling colors of my youth turned gray, leaving me a bored and listless young man. I met Ancient Dark in person only one other time shortly before he died, but during the intervening months we kept in touch regularly through Gchat. I found out he lived as a shut-in or hikikomori, as he liked to say. I told him he couldn't be a hikikomori because he wasn't Japanese, but other than race, he pretty much fit the bill. He didn't work, living off savings from his parents' life insurance and an allowance from his remaining family. He never left his apartment except to take out the trash. He paid rent by direct deposit. Groceries were delivered to his door each week. He never had friends over. He never went to the apartment complex's gym or laid out by the pool. He never talked to anyone on the phone except his aunt and uncle, his only remaining relatives. He didn't have any friends he'd met in real life during the past four years. Except me. Most of our conversations centered around video games we were playing, but each day I would ask him about his own project. He offered vague replies. Shiro K, 1987. So what's it about? Ancient Dark. Well, it's kind of a horror game, but it's also about our childhood. It's got fantasy elements. Shiro K, 1987. 
Okay, so what's it about? Ancient Ark. It's hard to explain. This was his most common answer. Shiro K, 1987. Do you have a title? Ancient Ark. Yeah. My name. Ancient Ark. AD never explained to me where this name came from or why he chose to call himself by it. My guess was that he just liked the sound of those two words together. They do have a sort of poetry. Shiro K, 1987. Well, can I at least see some images? I don't even know if it's a 2D side-scroller or an FPS or anything. Ancient Dark. I don't have them ready yet. But it will be a first-person adventure. 3D, fully immersive. Shiro K, 1987. How could you be unwilling to share even one image? Are you scared I might steal your ideas or something? Ancient Dark. No. It's not that. It's that this game, it's so different. I can only show you when it's finished. By this point, I was fed up with all the sidestepping. AD was clearly lying about this project. It probably didn't exist at all. He had lied that first time we met because he didn't want to continue a real-life conversation that night, and now he was stuck with a stupid story. Maybe he wanted me to think of him as this video game programmer because I'd think he was cool, maybe. He was worried he'd lose me as a friend. I offered him a chance to come clean. Shiro K, 1987. Look, it's okay if you're not working on the game. I know it's really hard to keep up with something. Completing stuff is the hardest thing in the creative world. We're always second-guessing ourselves. Ancient Dark. It's not that. Not at all. I'm close. Very close. I promise. It will be done. I stopped bringing up the game in our chats after that. A couple months passed. I had almost forgotten all about AD's project until one night when he sent me this. Ancient Dark. Do you want to come over to my place? My immediate thought was no. Over the months, I had created this mental picture of AD's apartment. There would be trash strewn everywhere, towers of old pizza boxes, piles of dirty underwear and socks, cockroach nests, the fetid stink of someone who bathes once a week. I pictured the homes of people on hoarders. I pictured this cliche shut-in apartment that was a death trap to any who dared enter. But then he wrote, I want you to test out my game. AD told me the alpha version of his game was only on his iPhone, and he wanted to watch me as I played, taking notes on his computer. He wrote that it would only take a few minutes. I figured I could handle a few minutes in his apartment. I knocked on AD's door. Sorry about the mess, he said, leading me inside. I was shocked. The place was practically spotless. Almost no trash, no dirty clothes, no cockroaches. Everything was white and pristine. It was cleaner than my own apartment, and all my friends called me a neat freak. The quote-unquote mess was just a smattering of empty energy drink cans and one pizza box. Here, have a seat on the couch, AD said. I sat on the couch. It looked like it had been purchased just yesterday. 
perhaps it had. Maybe A.D. bought all new furniture and had his place professionally clean so as to impress his first guest in years, but that seemed crazy. The iPhone and a pair of wireless headphones rested on the coffee table before me. The screen was turned on. It displayed a single touchscreen button. The international symbol for start, a half circle with a vertical line above it. I held the phone and put in the earbuds. Hold on one moment. AD got up and turned out the lights, plunging the whole apartment into darkness, which was odd given that it was midday outside. Had he blacked out the windows? I was contemplating telling AD that I was not feeling well, and then rushing from the apartment when he sat next to me on the couch and said, Okay, just press start and let yourself relax. Relax? AD was a big guy. He could easily knock me out with one swipe of his massive arms, but that also made him slow. I scooched over a bit, giving myself an easy out in case things got weird. Then I pressed start. The screen faded to a deep blue. I quickly realized it was the blue of water. Deep, clear water. Probably a hundred feet to the bottom. I could see strange fish swimming among the odd ruins that were bone white and massive in scale. There was something so unnerving about the clear view. It was inviting me to see all of the ocean's darkest secrets. I looked up. I was on board a small rowboat, drifting over these ruins. My hands were sore and calloused. They had been holding on to two oars. I could smell the salty ocean air. I could feel my butt resting on the damp bench in the center of the boat. There was no iPhone in my hand. There were no earbuds. There was just me and this drowned world. The hull gently rocked in the waves as I rode towards the crumbled remnants of a mysterious civilization. I was dreaming. And not just any dream. It, it was the exact dream I'd had virtually every night when I was eight years old. Back when the world was as mysterious as the ruins beneath me, I dipped my hand into the water. Its cold temperature was almost electric. I laughed. Was I dreaming? Did I literally pass out when I pressed that button? Or something worse? Had there been some electrical shock that coursed through my body and overloaded my heart? Was I dying? Was this my version of the pearly gates? That's when a big swell rocked the boat nearly to the moon. And suddenly I remembered something else about those childhood dreams. Something I seem to have forgotten over the intervening years. There was always 
I leaned over the side and saw it. As silent and large as a submarine, this enormous black shape, ever shifting, sometimes shark-like, sometimes squid-like, always menacing. It was swimming my way, 300 meters, 200 meters. I grabbed hold of the oars and pulled back as hard as I could. I rowed and rowed and rowed till my arms felt rubbery and my legs were stiff. That's why my hands were so calloused. Still, the creature pursued, staying in those crystal clear depths, beckoning me to look at it, to stare into its multitudinous orange-red eyes. I kept rowing. Ancient walls appeared on either side of the boat, riddled with algae-covered hieroglyphics, depicting monstrosities unknown to any religion or science. I turned around. A third wall rose from the water, blocking my path forward. I had rowed the boat into a dead end, and that's when the silent beast started to rise, its fluid shape finally coalescing into something solid, something I could recognize. The alien turned familiar, its gelatinous body melted down till it was my size, my, my shape, my face. I was staring at myself, only this doppelganger was empty. It stared back at me with hollow eyes, as dark as coal. I opened my mouth to scream. A thunderous vibration turned the world black, then bright white. Black, white, black, white. I blinked my eyes, staring down at Adie's iPhone in my hand. I was back in his apartment, sitting on the couch. Aedes stood across from me, holding an iPad. He typed furiously. Sorry about that, there was a critical bug. I had to do a hard reset, he said, not looking up from his tablet computer. But you experienced it, right? You saw it. You felt it. I set the phone down on the coffee table and took out the earbuds. My heart was jackhammering. <laughs> that just happened? Maybe I was electrocuted. Maybe it was a hallucination. Did I? You were lucid dreaming, AD said. I had the environment set up and everything based on parameters from your subconscious. My subconscious? I stood up, feeling lightheaded. You saw my subconscious. AD set his tablet on the kitchen counter. He was beaming. <laughs> That's the game. It's different for everyone. Now you see why I couldn't tell you about it before. You wouldn't have believed me. You'd have thought I was a nutcase. I did think that. But I didn't tell him. How? I asked. My brain struggled to process even basic thoughts after everything that had just happened. AD got me a tall glass of water from the sink. He sat me back down on the couch and he explained everything. I was very sick as a child. I spent weeks in bed. I'd read a lot, played video games, but mostly I slept. I'd sleep 14 hours straight some days. 
When I slept, I dreamed. They were the most vivid and incredible dreams, the kind of dreams that felt like you'd actually traveled to another world. I know you had them too. I saw it in your eyes. But how did you... I gestured to his phone, hoping that would complete the question my brain was too fried to ask. That's the most amazing part, A.D. said. You see, I was working on the API for this big finance company. It was an insane deadline. I worked nonstop. I would code for 18 hours straight. I skipped most meals. I stayed up all night. I don't think I slept for an entire week. It's hard to tell. I blacked out the windows because the daylight was too distracting. I completely lost track of time. By the time I finished, I was almost certain I lost my mind. But the code was solid. It had worked. And when I was all done, I flopped down on my bed, and I drifted into the deepest sleep. It felt like it had lasted years. I was amazed AD could talk this long, given that he had never spoken more than a few words out loud to anyone. He reminded me of a criminal who'd been holding back information for so long and was now compelled to confess everything. And for the first time since I was a kid, I dreamt. I had the same vivid, faraway dreams, but this time was different. This time I was aware. I was lucid. I explored every corridor in this maze and chiseled on its walls were these strings of numbers and letters and it was a code. It was a programming language I'd never seen before. One you'd never learn in school. A code that was baked into the universe itself. When I woke, I only remembered part of it, and for the last four years, I've been dreaming. Dreaming and coding every day. Trying to piece together all those strings, and you know what that language told me? I shook my head. He picked up the phone. Let me dream and code. With the right prompts, we can enter those dreams, and we can control them. We can live in the worlds we visited each night so many years ago. We can stay in them forever. That was the last time I saw A.D. alive. A few weeks later, he sent me an email explaining that he'd completed a beta version of the game that he was going to test that night. He asked if I would test it as well, but I declined. The experience at AD's apartment had left me feeling very small, as if my mind were this tiny boat adrift in a vast ocean, subject to every rise and dip of the waves. I'd experienced a very large wave that day, one that almost capsized me. I didn't think I could handle another. Aside from my work, I'd stopped playing video games after that. I rarely went online. I actually started hanging out with my friends more, grabbing drinks, going out to the movies. I joined a dating website. I wanted to get back out there to feel that I was alive. When I didn't see AD online the day after his beta test, I figured he was just busy fixing more bugs in the software. 
More days passed with no word and I grew increasingly worried. We chatted at least every other day. By day four, I decided to go down to his apartment. That's when I noticed the front door was open. I called 911 after discovering the body. They came and zipped AD up in a bag and carried him out. I went to the station. It was a formality. They just wanted to know how I'd discovered the body, what our relationship had been. The coroner's report stated that AD died of a combination of dehydration and exhaustion. Apparently he hadn't eaten or drank anything for four days. It was a baffling finding, one that still casts me in a suspicious light with authorities to this day. But I could never tell them what really happened. I could never show them what I'd found clutched in Adie's stiff hands as I saw him sitting there in bed, that blank white screen illuminating the endless stare in his glassy eyes. His expression was not one of shock or horror. There was no fear or pain in those eyes. There was just pure, unencumbered fascination. I took AD's phone and earbuds before the police arrived that day, an action that has certainly fueled suspicions regarding my involvement in his death. I did it because I didn't want anyone else falling into the game's endless trap. Just press start and enjoy your dream journey to oblivion. At least that's what I told myself. As I write these words, I feel a soft, ringing vibration from the bottom drawer of my desk where I placed his phone and earbuds. It hasn't stopped for hours. The waters are calling to me. They're beckoning me to jump in. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed tonight's stories. Another reminder that next week will be a hiatus week, but if you join my Patreon, I just uploaded a bonus episode. It's part two of True Crime ASMR, where I tell you about some of the most mysterious unsolved children's disappearances in American history. Speaking of Patreon, this week's Patreon patron and who I owe my eternal gratitude to is Janice J. Mykoski. Thank you so much, Janice. Follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at Scare You to Sleep. Come join in our discussion threads on Facebook, facebook.com slash scare you to sleep. You can also follow my personal Twitter and Instagram at Shelby B. Scott. Encourage the little ones in your life to write a scary story for the kids episode. I don't currently have a deadline or anything since I don't know how many entries I'll receive, but I will update you on that when we see each other again in two weeks. I don't know if you guys ever stick around, but I often tack on trailers for new and interesting podcasts I've found. This week is no exception. Stay tuned for a sneak peek at a brand new spooky podcast from a fellow creepy lady. I think that's all for now. Now, go get some sleep. Sweet dreams.
Welcome to Meet My Ghost, a podcast of short ghost stories where you'll hear a collection of quick but spooky encounters in each show, because it doesn't take a long time to get thoroughly creeped out. I'm Sandy Tufts, and my quest is to find and bring you chilling personal tales recounted by the people who experience them, and maybe some freaky fictional stories now and then as well because there's nothing like a good ghost story. Do you believe in ghosts? Join me for the show and see what you think. You can find Meet My Ghost wherever you listen to your podcasts, as well as Instagram and meetmyghost.com. Come get creeped out with me.